Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as What would Nillen have to say about this bridge? Would Warlock really take out an entire city to mark his own death? Where did Hunter learn to lose a fight like that? Probably from someone who got their position by dating their boss. There's nothing better in life than the look on your enemy's face when they realize you've played them every step of the way. Why do you think I keep starting secret cabals trying to overthrow me? Dread Emperor Traitorous. Before we get too deep into a summary or talking about this actual chapter, I every single thing I learn about Dread the Dread Emperor Traitorous makes me love him more. This man is incredible, easily top two three dread emperors that we learn about phenomenal i just, i love him so much that's how he gets you i think oh no maybe i am falling for it you're right i mean i know i'm falling for him am i right you, you kind of just did that so in this chapter we start off in a we start off like every chapter chaos in a battlefield covered in goblin fire and after a squabble with some heroes catherine realizes that warlock's dead or something like it it's a battle chapter. There's really not much to summarize. But but they fight, and it's fun. And there's a bridge. And that's all the time we have this week. I'm po- Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, we, we start off with the uh, how the last chapter ended. There's goblin fire, chaos. Things are not going particularly to plan. Uh, and then a person who we will soon find out is the hunter uh, delivers just a wonderful line. Kat says something about, I'll, I'll learn to stop doing that. Uh, she's learning. Ah. Basically, Kat says, I'll learn to stop doing that. Tempting fate by saying the equivalent of how could, you know, at least we made it out alive or we've made it through this one too early. And <clears throat> this person, Hunter, who's dropped from the ceiling and stabbed at Kat, sneers at her and says, I'm told evil is habit forming miscreant. Don't count on it. And I adore when these goofy named roll up and just lean into the drama of it all. Not 
not the black style of drama where it's I'm setting this up because this is the story I want to tell, but fully just buying into their own hype and just giving it their all. He calls her a miscreant. It, it's so good. And, you know, yada yada, it sets the woe and the calamities and their real foes, the Grilgrim, the Saint of Swords, the, you know, things like that, into a sharp relief where you can see how dangerous they are because of how they use these things. Yes, that's all great and important and well-written, but I still love Miscreant as the way that he greets Kat for the first time. It's very strong. You're talking about how they greet each other, but can we just acknowledge that he appears by flipping down from the ceiling out of nowhere? Sure. Because, of course. Because he's the hunter, and that's just the kind of guy he is. I am from a rural state in the United States, and part of being from a rural state means hunting is all around you. And while some people have a big issue with it, speaking as a speaking as someone who was for many years a vegetarian on animal rights grounds, the herd must be culled. The white-tailed deer population in the United States has no major natural predator beyond humankind because somebody killed all the wolves and i've gone hunting a few times until my father stopped bringing me because he noticed i was deliberately missing the squirrels when historically i'm actually a very good shot and i know i'm talking about deer hunting but this was during squirrel season when it became obvious because we were lucky to not encounter deer and i don't recall flipping from any ceilings well, it's an advanced technique. This guy's named, you know. He's he's the best. Oh, of wholly unrelatedly, have you ever encountered an owl in the wild? Uh, in what sense are we talking about encountered here? Like seen one at a distance? Sure. Well, I'm thinking more like my encounter, because as in the deer stand at you know six a.m. in the middle of winter, H- bundled up, the, freezing, hanging from the ceiling of the deer stand. I assume. Oh, actually, we were on top of the ceiling. It, Perfect. Gives you range and sights so you can shoot animals, but apparently we were doing it backwards. But all of a sudden, this owl flew directly overhead, six feet above us at the most, directly over us. I think it was a barn owl, Taito Alba, if my Guardians of Gahul knowledge serves me well, which are terrible books on a reread. The author really liked Winston Churchill, which is embarrassing, but despite it being right there and pretty darn big it was entirely silent and i've known that about owls many of them are very silent that that's one of their things but it's really weird being in the middle of the wilderness and an owl just is there on mute well owls are top tier hunters and they kind of treat the sky as the ceiling and so they can just perch upside down on the ceiling waiting to drop on unsuspecting prey Really, it all comes back to Hunter, he knows what he's about. And what is he about? Mostly leather pants, I think. I'm sorry, but out of character, I don't think I'm about to say get me a man like that. However, Cat is a little disappointed in his insult. She says, miscreant, that's the best you could manage. I get harder sass than that for my officers, and they're not even trying to hurt my feelings. I know they're trying to present a united front in the face of the good guys, but... Yes, they are, Catherine. Everyone grows to love each other, but this is the kind of group that still socializes by honestly trying to hurt one another's feelings. Just a little. 
Well, yeah. You won't know if you've won the conversation unless the other person's at least a little hurt. I was part of American male socialization in my adolescent years. And I can assure you, friendship is being cruel to one another. For the most part, yeah. If you're not, what are you, gay? And I am. So, checkmate. I mean, chocolate up to you over, let's see who's on the other side here, the general high school male population. So, nice job. I have cleared a subterranean bar. (laughs) Good is incompetent sometimes. This group of good is often incompetent. But there's a shred of competency here that is cleverly disguised as incompetence. We learn by the end of this chapter, spoiler alert for those of you who, moving on, uh, (laughs) by the end of this chapter, we see it's all a distraction. Billy's going to go murder the warlock, which is a a reasonable thing to desire that is possible to do. And right now, we think this really is just some kind of assault plan or a kind of luring to Bill what's going on, we don't know. But as Hunter moves to fight, the mage above, the bumbling conjurer himself, yells, Hunter, stick to the plan. William told us not to fight her. And even rereading this the first time, I thought, wow, amateur. William told us not to fight her. You could have accomplished the same thing by saying, Hunter, stick to the plan, and revealed very little other than, hey, there was a misstep happening. But no, it's actually a redirection. Good job. It's almost like they had some help and intercession. If wow. You will. Very nice. And then they get Spargin. They do. Uh, we talked about this when uh, the training sharpers and other goblin munitions first showed up um, because we get the commands for each of the three of them. We talked a little bit about their Latin, I mean, meets and translations. Um, but here, in an actual combat situation, Cat delivers the order for sharpers. The Did we decide Spargere? Uh, spargere, 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 whichever. Well, the last one lent a little Italian, so... Which, uh, regrettably, is, in fact, what Latin did over the years. <laughs> whoops. Uh, and we get the official, like, canon... Oopsie, you're Italian now. <laughs> yeah. uh, you get the official canon Old Meatson translation there scatter makes sense for sharpers so that's neat that we that she uses it on the battlefield here and basically not really a lot past this because she stopped at least there. not a lot noted right i imagine she also stops using it she's rarely in charge of the tactical decisions at this like line level going forward she has uh bigger fish to fry as they say bigger bigger hunters to fry and speaking of fried hunters... But it's a bigger hunter, not simply hunt the smaller ones. And speaking of hunters to fry... Cat uh, gives the order for fireballs. She's already said it's spargin time. And the description we get of hunter as fireballs fly and sharper is sharp is the man's look of horrified surprise was priceless as sharpers exploding in the background punctuated the scene. And I realize he's been a dumb little forest boy all his life but so was link and he became the hero of time his his evil stepmother is ranger and her boyfriend is the legions of terror and i know we can't expect anything from ranger but couldn't he have found a way to have any idea how the legions function because nothing here is oh there's name stuff going on nothing here is 
oh, Kendra's a powerful mage. No, these are fireballs and sharpers. This is the default. It is the default, but I think uh, learning from Ranger has its downsides, probably. And one of those could be a sense of superiority over everybody, and especially people who don't have names. Hunter probably went into this assuming that nobody aside from, in as far as he knows, Cat and Zs would be anything like a threat to him. And then when they did things that were an actual threat, he was shocked. Meaning, go back a few weeks planning this, back a few months, first beginning all of it, however long he's been involved. Uh, why would he look into what the normal people who wear armor and hold swords can do to him? He can fight those guys all day long. They're not a threat. Oh, wait, they are. My bad. Well, they're a complication. Let's not pretend there's a real issue. Uh, Even though he's unarmored. He's unarmored. He gets exposed skin, which is all of it, uh, is scorched. And though the legions can pose a threat even to a hero, few even dare to attempt to pose one to us. For you see, it's time for deicide and applied blasphemy. Deicide and Applied Blasphemy is our segment where we discuss comments and questions from you, our dear listeners. We have falsely assumed the thrones of your gods, and we invite you in this segment to challenge us for the mantles. You will not succeed, and we will continue on, unceasing and unerring. Today's commentary comes from the Fey Knight, our patron and guardian, who writes in regards to the function of the Legion. They write, The Return to Summerhome arc brings a question to mind. It's been established that the Legions aren't a peacekeeping organization. Okay, sure, the name Legions of Terror says it all. Why, though? From what I understand, the modern idea of a dedicated peacekeeping force is relatively recent. In the setting, it seems to be the City Watch who handles situations like these. But the Legions themselves are garrisoned in Callowan cities as an occupying force for decades, and they have neither training nor equipment to deal with an insurrection? In other circumstances, I would have called that an oversight, but considering the mind behind the legions is black, I'm inclined to think that there's a play behind it that I'm not getting. Probably hero-related. I think this is a a great comment. I think it's a great thing to look at. Um, I have a couple thoughts as to why the legions aren't doing this. The legions need to stay stay specialized. They work like an assembly line, like a machine. Everybody's got a part to play in the order of battle. You've got your front line, you've got your heavies, you've got your uh, sappers, you've got your mages. They all have specific things. If you are on the side training them to deal with riots or crowd control, you are missing out on time where they can be used for their main purpose. That weakens the function of the legions in a very real way. And it's not necessary for the most part. Insurrections that are actually a threat are always going to be hero-led. If they're not hero-led, honestly, Scribe can handle rebellions, riots, insurrections on her own. She's got an assassin, she's got the bureaucracy of the Empire, she's got Scribe powers. Somewhere between she and Militia, they're all taken care of. And if they're hero-led, and thus Scribe or Militia can't handle them on their own, that's calamity handled. And should the insurrection make it past the point where it is a small threat and becomes a military that they have to defeat, great, you've got the Legions of Terror, the best all-around military on the continent, maybe, backed up by the Calamities. It's There's a series of stages here. Each one has a play in Black's book to handle it, and at no point does anybody have to step outside of their specialty to do so. Right in from 
more of a story angle, I would be willing to believe that Black also doesn't want the Legions to be fulfilling the role of an occupying peacekeeping force. Because although the long histories of Calum and Praetz mean that the possibility of insurrection, the possibility of separation, the steady rise of Calum heroes to throw off the yoke will continue for a long time, by avoiding this piece of the story of Praetz is the evil occupying force and they've got soldiers in every city keeping everyone down. If it's actually Callowin who serve to maintain order, however Callowins do that, which is to say poorly because they're not Praetz, so they're bad, uh, as one less element to support the rise of heroes, to support the dissolution of what they worked so hard to build. The Legions of Terror? Yeah, they conquered the land. And now the land is integrated and practically is self-governing. It'll be self-governing soon too, but that's not part of the plan. Do any of you have thoughts? Would you care to send them our way? Would you like us to publicize them for open ridicule? Or, if they're as ingenious as the Fae Knights, for public contemplation? You can write in at thelongprice at gmail.com or write to us on whatever letter they've gotten to on whatever Twitter it's become, at thelongprice. You can also find our Patreon, where the Faye Knight wrote to us at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. That's two e's, because this errata is erratic. And, as always, we stand unvanquished. Better luck next time. He gets knocked back, and then he starts fighting. Uh, yeah, but this is a guy who trained at Refuge. So, oh no, he got forced into a fight. Great, then he wins. Except Cat easily slaps away his first real, like, close-range attack um, and describes it as a pathetic effort and then is able to attack him, retaliate, and score a vicious gash on his cheek. Cat uh, trained with Black. Cat's trained with Captain. Obviously, she's trained with some of the best. But this guy has trained with Ranger and presumably somewhat with William, I would imagine. And he's pathetic compared to Cat, who's 12 and has been holding a sword for like a week, I think. It's kind of rough. You've got to wonder what's going on at Refuge. Except we don't got to wonder. We know, and it's all bad. I just want to point out that I don't think he's trained with William, because while the Lone Swordsman completely undermines himself by not being Lone, he would just so obviously refuse to train with any of his team because he's a lone swordsman and he trains alone. So he doesn't even get the benefits of breaking his deal. Yeah, that's fair. He's just bad. I mean, yeah, all the way around. Speaking of bad people, Catherine retaliates from the pathetic effort by scoring a vicious gash on his cheek and tells us, I'd aimed for the eye to cripple as early in the fight as I could. And it doesn't work, blah, blah, blah. One, interesting parallel. She loses an eye. I don't have much to say on that. Two, how nasty. How wonderfully and practically nasty. She's doing Daddy proud. It's also, yeah, it's a practical nastiness. Not going for the kill right off the bat, because that's not how fights with named go, barring extreme gulfs in relative power and experience, which don't exist here. You, A war of attrition? Mm, sure. Crippling right away? Yeah, go for it. Now you have a huge advantage. That's great. Now you can go for the kill. She she knows what she's about. This is great. The problem, though, is if you don't succeed at the oculectomy, yep. you've mostly wasted your attack. 
And it's like I always said back in my world's most popular tabletop role-playing game days, if you offer a saving throw, you've already lost. People should only go for direct damage spells. Fortunately, the Conjurer fully agrees with you and uses a classic. He blasts out a glowing blue projectile towards Cat, which is uh, blocked, counterspelled, whatever the term is here, by uh, Zs. And Zs laughs at him. Because of course he does, I love Z's. And calls him a filthy dabbler for using the magic missile. What a great little, I don't know if you can call it an Easter egg, something like it. It's wonderful to see it here. Have you ever read the great evangelical tract artist Jack Chick's Dark Dungeons evangelical tract? You absolutely know that I have, of course. Yes, and we've also watched the film together. Well, I, this is all great. I love it. 1d4 plus 1 damage. God's bless. But in the Dark Dungeon strip, which teaches us all about the dangers of the world's most popular tabletop role-playing game that is definitely mm-hmm. bad now because Hasbro is evil and was pretty bad before because Wizards was evil and was pretty bad before because TSR was evil and was pretty bad before because Gygax was not great. Uh, that one, there's yeah. a scene where... The character is truly being sucked in by the dark magics of the dungeons, among other things she was playing. And she says something along the lines of, go away, Marcy, to her friend who goes to dire lengths because she's being denied her tabletop role-playing game. Go away, I'm fighting the zombie. And the zombie, the magic missile, this is how all things should be referred to. I'm approaching a new decade of age. And I plan to just start calling everything the. And by start to, I mean, I've already been talking about the TikTok. Don't. I was going to say, adding the before many, many things has been a part of your idiom for a literal decade, at least. A little while ago, I just said to someone, I have to go record the podcast, which is not the same thing. No, because this is the podcast, actually. But if you'd like us to do another podcast, hold on, give hold us a on. lot of money. <laughs> Give us some money to retire, and we'll record whatever podcast you want if we feel like it. Uh, the fight goes on. Hawkram steps up to help out. Uh, Hunter complains about this with a another wonderful, uh, typical villain. Can't take me on, presumably going to say it by yourself. Cat shield bashes him in the face, breaks his nose. You gotta appreciate that interruption. Good job, Cat. Oh, absolutely. Uh, she swears by the weeping heavens, so we're still there. Um... And he's, uh, the hunter is just being more of the hunter. He's a mess. Always is, always will be. And uh, while this fight is going on, this sort of brawl between uh, an orc, a half-orc, and a guy who's wearing, I think, nothing last we checked, uh, there's also a sort of mages duel going on in the background. Well, hunter will always be bad. Our dear apprentice and later other things, Masego, will always be the best. At this point, there's been a door flying around and smashed. It's been details. Don't worry about it. And now from the corner of my eye, Catherine tells us, I saw Masego pick up the pieces of the now shattered door with a spell. And content warning, magic in the guide, wedge shards into the flesh of the men surrounding the bumbling conjurer, resisting the urge to wince at the sight. That's just great. Not to bring up the world's most popular role-playing game again. But in the third and a half edition, maybe the third edition, I think third and a half, 
There is the Book of Vile Darkness as one of the source books, which has some similarly wonderfully evocative spells like Flensing, where you flens your opponent, or Avasculate. The Vasculate here, meaning the vascular system, that's where you pull out people's veins and entangle nearby people with them forcibly. And there's something that just thrills me about this kind of blessed use of magic. And this is why I liked reading the Locked Tomb series, and you will too. A strong second on that. Locked Tomb is great. There's uh, Magic doing an extra level of nastiness is always great. There's a level of intimidation being attached to it that is useful for something that is oftentimes about getting as much effect as possible out of the first or second thing you do. Uh, makes sense. It's good. It's also, again, kind of nasty sometimes. Z's is a master of magic. And that's why he's in a wizard's duel with someone else who is really competent. Uh, right. He's facing off against um, the Bumbling Conjurer, who we start to get a little bit more information about. He's a mage, but most of his power is in a weird variety of luck. Uh, the name and sort of what we think of it so far, or at least for me, it feels like it's you accidentally do great things with your magic. The prime example being foiling the warlock's scrying methods with an oopsie is impressive. Here, though, we see a moment where he's not just doing magic the wrong way and producing excellent results. There's just sort of this aura of whoopsie-daisy around him that goes really well. He uh, <laughs> he trips on his own robes and falls, lands on a table that's burning with goblin fire, and... The table flips over and starts rolling towards Kat in a way that is close and immediate and present enough that she has to throw herself out of the way. It's phenomenal. The guy falls off of a, a ledge and still manages to make that into a, a, a plausible threat to the main, to the leader of the villainous group here. It's phenomenal. Which is wildly unfair. And you just have to say, oh, for heaven's sake. And by you have to, I mean, Catherine does, which. Again, no. We get some really great dialogue here as people are getting beaten up and have mouth injuries. Hunter swears revenge, saying, Be with me again, Squire, and... Which is... Very well done, by the way. Thank you. I've been taking... Broken nose speech lessons. I've been getting into fights. I have never been in a violent fight, and I would not survive one. I recognize this, and I am blessed. But when he starts saying that Robert shoots him in the calf, which further cements my idea that Robert is named, because it's it's hard to shoot a named. It really is. I know he was making bad choices, but it's still hard to shoot a named. And of course Robert shot him. Therefore. He was and it, he was monologuing. He deserved to get shot. He did. But heroes don't get what they deserve. They get much better. Fair. And in response to this, Catherine reasonably but wildly concerningly says, I'm putting you up for commendation, which is not how this relationship works, Catherine. Please get better. They're still feeling out how it works. But yeah, it's a little weird, for sure. Speaking of weird things that work, and also someone who's figured out how things work. Was, oh, we're we stopping there? Uh, there's a goblin fire in the way. The heroes are on the other side of the room. Kat's over here with her legionaries, her other named, and they need to chase the heroes. So 
she enlists the help of the mage that she's got with her, the real one, Z's. And he says that he can get everyone across if they give him some space. And then he does a spell. Uh, and of course, because it's early on, even just what he's doing here, making a bridge gets a very cool scene of him calling on this this pact that he has. And uh, so he, he throws a hand forward. He, you know, he's got his eyes closed. He's got the trinkets in his hair, the, these, these collection of items that he's got woven into his braids. They're starting to glow. And in Mithaithwa, his voice going unnaturally deep, he says... Kakaitis, curse of traitors, tyrant of winter, by my borrowed blood I call on you. Contracts were made, debts incurred. My will is paramount, here and forever. Drown the world in ice. As this is going on, his eyes fly open. They're, gold, they're glowing this shade of gold that's deeply disquieting to Cat. There's goblin fire in the room. There's probably the smell of blood and sweat, a fight, and still Cat smells brimstone. There's a shiver down her spine that had nothing to do with the new cold that's in this room as Z's calls on a contract with a devil to build a bridge. If only Nilan were here. He would be so proud. You say he's calling on a contract with the devil, and he is. But that's not yet confirmed. Catherine only suspects it. And she says something that's a really nifty detail here. Uh, side note, this is a scene I've remembered forever. My will is paramount now and forever. Drown the world in ice is frankly, oh, literally oh. tattooed on my face. Oh, good. It is. Yeah, I, I didn't want to like glide past that because, of, you know, but it is so good. The whole spell here, the whole incantation he does is so good. I love stuff like this in this story. And this is a top tier one. We don't too regularly get to the incantations because there's just so much going on and it would kind of drag the story to have prose poems interspersed all the time. And when I say drag the story, I do mean it would slow it. It would also be great and I'd love it. But Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Catherine drops a nifty detail here. She says, if that wasn't calling on a contract with the devil, I would shave my head and become a nun. So there's a nun tradition in the Callowan House of Light, or at the very least, in Callowan culture as a whole, or Callowan awareness. I come from a non-Catholic background, and the concept of nuns is still known and prevalent because of the prevalence in the wider world. But she also says, I would shave my head and become a nun. Possibly this is one of those sayings that's just two things rammed together. But possibly there are nuns, and they shave their heads. I think that's cool. Nothing to do with it. Fun thing. Another little detail here that, again, don't really have anything to follow up with it, but uh, Kat says, a wind howled that all of us felt without it actually being a physical thing. That's interesting. There's this supernatural, sub-physical wind blowing in the room, and everybody, even people who aren't attuned to magic, can feel it. That's neat. From this wind, we get the... Uh, globe of ice water, ice clear water that floats across the room and creates a bridge over the goblin fire, uh, creating this steam and this icy construction for everybody to go across. Uh, and then 
the apprentice ends this spell. And when he does so, he lets out a grunt of effort, barking something out in the caster's tongue before dropping to his knees, panting in exhaustion. Because of Catherine being Catherine, we don't get all the details about magic all the time that we want. I want to know more about the caster's tongue. Is it even real or is it Catherine's conception right now? There's also another thing in here uh, about him being exhausted. Oftentimes in fantasy settings, if you're calling on a contract to do something powerful, which is you know a pretty common trope, the the danger, the risk of the contract, the cost of the contract is in the contract itself. It's what you you pay for something. You are taking a risk by compacting with you know a fiend of some variety, whatever. But here, in addition to that, maybe we don't really know behind the scenes here. It's also completely exhausting to Z's, who is you know a prodigy when it comes to magic. This wears him out such that he drops to his knees at the culmination of this contract. There's layers to this. It's not just a well, I used a contract, therefore I know I don't have to worry about this. It it's still a trying spell for him to use. Just a, another little interesting bit of the of magic there that we you know continue to see in these early early chapters, especially. But obviously, we're still learning how various parts of magic in this setting work up until the very end. What happens at the end? Big magic. Ooh, I can't wait. Me Speaking of big magic, apparently good old ZZ held this power in reserve because um, it wouldn't be a good idea to use during the fight because of it being big. There's the concern of being interrupted during his calling on a contract. At uh, which point he would lose the spell and it be wasted, right? Apparently it would be dot 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 bad. And Z's grimace is here and says it's a golden opportunity for the conjurer to bumble his way to victory, or at least a common defeat. It's... Look at Amadeus's nephew has the concept of story stuff. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's neat. It's uh, it's cool that we get this little bit that not only is con- calling on a contract absolutely exhausting and nearly debilitating, it's also incredibly risky to do in a heated situation. And by heated, I mean combat, not being surrounded by goblin fire, apparently, because. It, an interruption in the middle of it would be very dangerous. Apparently, an entire wing of the palace would be frozen for the next century. And we're going to see some devil fighting soon. We're going to see demon fighting too. And individual devils are really bad, but like you can put them down with the legions bad at severe cost. And apparently, contracts with the right devils can freeze things for a century if they go wrong i'm curious about the mechanism of emergent power is it the devil is supplying this power is it that there's something special about the contract and devils have the ability to forge contracts which themselves would then evoke energies from reality itself blah blah blah. i'm curious because i know even now cat can stab a devil to death and she can't stab being frozen for a century to death. That's well, what makes it... <laughs> no, not, being right. frozen for a century actually pulls her how, her heart out to death. So right. checkmate cat. That's what makes it so interesting, is it's not frozen for eternity. It's got an end date, which means it is thawing slowly. But also that there's no... He doesn't say an entire wing of the palace frozen until my dad gets here. You would expect Warlock to be able to do something about that. Nope. It's just frozen. This is... Uh, pretty powerful. Just a reminder, this this uh, uh, raw 
energy that Aziz was drawing on that could have frozen a wing for a century. He used it to build a bridge. Now, admittedly, a bridge over goblin fire, famously capable of burning magic, and it was safe to walk across. Very impressive, actually. I don't want to gloss over that, but still. But still. And Kat wants to bring up this devil contract thing with him again in the future. She doesn't say why, but we know why. It's because she's a sheltered little Callowing girl who thinks this is a bad thing. And that's great. Devilry is not the worst thing that Masego is going to secretly be carrying with him. In a very literal sense, yeah. Slaps Masego. This mage can fit so many demons in it. That's a meme. I'm sorry, that's one of the memes for all of you uh, <laughs> hep cats out there, which is old-timey slang for hepatitis cats. Are you accusing... Are you suggesting... I, accusing is the wrong word. Are you suggesting that our listeners have hepatitis i'm i'm not sure i follow no hepcats was used back in the 20s and it's currently the 20s to refer to cool people because back then that was before the invention of morality because you can't judge people in history ever ever even when they do really bad things and other people were saying it was bad no no you can't judge by modern standards that that's a joke people use it wildly when talking about american history and people knew the abomination of American chattel slavery was very, very bad, even back then. They were just greedy losers about it. Uh, not losers, monsters. Uh, but back in the 20s, they loved biological warfare. This was before smallpox was invented and then later eradicated. So they had hepatitis cats that they released into enemy cities to give everyone hepatitis. And they're like, these are the coolest things. I'm going to call my friends hepatitis cats. And it's a very true etymology, and nobody should look it up. They make their way through the goblin fire trap, delaying tactic, obstacle. And Kat starts to work her way through what's going on here and comes to the conclusion that things are not quite adding up and kind of slows down to talk to Hockerman and says, I think we're being played. And Hockerman's response is great. He says, I'm getting to that conclusion myself. Something's wrong here. Robert saw the swordsman earlier, so where the hell is he? If he'd been with the other two heroes earlier, he might have tipped the balance. As Kat is arriving at this conclusion, Hawkram is exactly right there with her, with her. He's getting to this conclusion at the same time. He's giving her an extra layer of context that she's probably arriving at as he's saying it. Like They are so in sync here, and it's phenomenal. Kat is brilliant when it comes to this kind of thing, to on-the-fly decision-making to going into the plan and adjusting it as she goes, and Hockram is Hockram, and he's keeping up with her. Uh, because, again, Hockram is Hockram. This is uh, excellent. It, it, it's it's so fun to see these things, especially before he is fully into his name. Uh, it's just who he is around Cat, and I love it. All true and all good, but I also want to recognize that Hockram, well, Hockram is keeping up with Cat, and Cat's figuring things out. Kat is a fool by her later standards, as evidenced by the fact that she's only on the level of the extremely clever, but not great mastermind, Masego. Because as he joins them, he frankly provides something of a tutorial role for her. You need to stop thinking like a general, Squire. We've had this conversation before, remember? The Twelfth has never been the target here. Neither was Summerholm itself. He's come to the conclusion, and he's very smart, very clever, and he can figure things out that literally nobody else can, except maybe Aquia. But it is not going to be typical for him to see through the strategies 
at the rate Catherine does, other than if he's looking at the magical schema. And this is not a magical schemum. No, but it is also sort of a repeat of the conversation that happened with Warlock. And so Z's paying attention to what his dad said and reminding Kat of it is fully within character to say, hey, actually somebody who I respect more than you already solved this one. Just saying. I really like their family. I mean, he even directly quotes Warlock with the, you need to stop thinking like a general. It It's very powerful. I'm a, a, a high schooler who's quoting something from somebody smarter and acting like I really have it all figured out. It's amazing. But he, the thing is, they need someone who can figure things out because they don't understand how magecraft works. It's Catherine's weakness throughout the series, even though she works really hard on it later on. And very begrudgingly. Yeah, Zeus is not impressed with the quality of mages around, including, uh, you know, Kafka and her crew, because he says they have a mage, Catherine, not a legion, barely literate thug, someone who went through an apprenticeship. Do you really think they can't cast an illusion that basic? And sure, rude, but also I do every time the legion mages get brought up. Z's just goes on a tear. Like, no matter how important it is, he's got to take a moment to be like, and remember, they're idiots. And it's great. It's about at the point where he would be directing things. We need you to wheel around the mages, who are bad, to concentrate their firepower on that part of the spell so I can... And I love him. <laughs> he's, he is uh, just a gem. Now, what I have to say next must be prefaced by the fact that I know... You know, we all know. There's a lot of important story stuff going on. There's a lot of bits and pieces of undermining this. But even so, it's just the, how can you say that? Catherine realizes that while we'd been running around like headless chickens, putting out fires and pursuing his minions, he'd been loose in the city. Where Warlock was defenseless. At least as defenseless as a calamity could ever be. Warlock is not defenseless on the day he dies. He is... Starting to get pinned down here, sure. But even with everything so far going in the hero's favor, it's not going to be a nice fight. Warlock, he's in the top five least defenseless people on the continent. (laughs) Especially in his own bastion that he's set up here. Who is more well-positioned than him, but for the Dead King, the twin goddesses, if you count them and I don't? Uh, The Titan, maybe? Militia? Basically everybody who's got a tower, you're saying. Have you played chess? Towers are OP. Yeah, good point, good point. And surely you mean Shatranj, right? Have you played Shatranj? Towers are OP? Uh, Let me look up Shatranj, see how it works. Okay. It's a direct predecessor. Ah, I'm just looking at the words here, but the pieces are the Shah, the King, the Queen is the Fertz, or Fares, the Counselor, then... The towery piece is what I call it in American English, practically. The rook, rook, R-U-K-H. The bishop is the peel or alfili, the elephant. The knights are the azb or faras, the horse or knight. And the pawn is the sarbaz or piade or baidak in Arabic, the soldier, infantryman, or pawn. Uh, Anyone who speaks Arabic or Anyone who speaks Persian or Arabic or any other relevant language here, I apologize for pronunciations. Also, can you teach me? I think those are two of the most fascinating languages. And while all languages, well, there's no better language than another, 
those are two that I'm, I I really would like to get some proficiency in, especially with some of the Arabic throat noises, because we don't have enough of those in the Western languages I speak. Pat. Oh. Pat. Oh. Oh. The rook derives from the Persian rook or rook. I don't know what sound the R should make. I don't, I think the KH means I need to aspirate it, which is hard for someone from a language without the differentiation. But it comes from Persian meaning chariot. That's awesome. It's really fun. Pat has expressed a little concern about the warlock's safety here to, to sort of wrap up the chapter uh, because there's goblin fire around and goblin fire eats magic. And warlock is in a dimensionally removed tower and, uh, you know, we've talked about how, because of this format, EE does a phenomenal job of ending chapters, and this is another example of that. Uh, and let it be known, we don't read the end, the last sentence, the last paragraph of every chapter, because there's no need to do that. Um, we don't even reference every one of them. They're all phenomenal, and the ones we specifically call out are the ones that speak to us personally or that are particularly relevant to other things we've been talking about. Uh, so roughly one every other week. Right, Maybe exactly. Two every three weeks. <laughs> exactly. But uh, this one is just great because uh, some of the, the language used here. Uh, she asks Zs, can you bring down the ward, Masego, before it turns Summerholm into a field of ashes? And his son along with it, I silently finished. Apprentice nodded. But the backlash. Cat finishes his statement, would weaken him, uh, enough that a group of heroes might be able to kill him if they hurry. And the chapter ends on, in the distance, the western bastion burned green. A candle lit to announce the death of a legend. Holy moly, is that great. She's incredibly wrong, but holy moly, is that great. She's unspeakably wrong. But <laughs> good job, Catherine. It sounded cool. Unfortunately, we will have to dive into exactly how wrong she is in detail next week, because that is all the time we have for today. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Rata as we discuss Deep Introspection Heroic Amputation And One Weird Flirt Wade in Their Blood Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Secrets of the Old Library by Jeff Harvey. Magic music was Loneliness of the Winner by Amaranta Music. Outro music which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine is The Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music slash. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at The Long Price. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. -E. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, and access at 
least one Patreon exclusive tangent. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Grey, our patron and liege, always a claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fane Knight, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 9, Rematch.